The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Avery Schmitz with an episode of Chatter for April 2nd, 2023. For today's episode, the Lawfare team decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast from David Fries and Shane Harris, featuring in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled Debunking Nuclear Proliferation Myths with Malfred Brott-Heghammer. In the episode, Fries sat down with Brott-Heghammer to discuss challenges with countering the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, her research of covert nuclear programs, and more. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, Norwegian political scientist Malfred Braut-Heghammer debunking nuclear proliferation myths. These are long projects. They take a really long time. You know, in some ways, they seem to take longer and longer. And so other priorities come in the way, and that can have really big consequences. The 2022 invasion of Ukraine really created a fear of, of nuclear war um, in Norwegian society that we haven't seen really since the 1980s. Nuclear weapons are likely to be more important for Russia in years to come, given the performance of its conventional forces. So I think the concern about nuclear weapons has certainly been reawakened. Malfred, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. I want to talk about nuclear weapons, specifically I want to talk about the proliferation of nuclear weapons and how countries seek to get them and the many ways in which they might fail. And you really have carved out a space for yourself uh, working on this topic and doing some extraordinary research on it. But I'd like to go back to younger Malfried. So let's talk about how you first got interested in proliferation as a subject. I'm picturing a six-year-old girl uh, in Oslo or or nearby, who is is sitting out in nature and suddenly has this revelation that her life's work will be devoted to proliferation of nuclear weapons. Please tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> 
You're half wrong and half right. I was probably sitting in nature somewhere because I grew up in a farm in Western Norway. But um, my dreams were much more in the direction of uh, becoming a vet. So I failed mm. terribly in that aspiration. But uh, very shortly thereafter, I decided uh, international politics strategy was the way to go for me. And the particular interest in well, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction came fairly early on. I would say it came already when I was an undergraduate student in Wales in the UK, where nuclear strategy was uh, a, a topic that had been taught for a long time. And when I was working on my master's, um, this was in the late summer of 2002, I thought, well, Iraq is an interesting topic because there were some inspections there at some point. And sure enough, it became a, an increasingly interesting topic as I was working on this thesis. I interviewed a lot of weapon scientists and here we are 20 years later and I'm still working on the same, <laughs> on the same uh, topic in a way. So it, it really caught me early on and uh, yeah, I'm still interested in it. Do you remember what sparked your initial interest in international relations? in general, something something in the news or just looking at a globe and wanting to learn more about it? I think that the boring answer is that I was always really interested in history. And I did read a lot of history, even as a young child. Um, the more exciting answer, perhaps, is that one of my first memories of international relations was the 91 Gulf War. And I remember being very concerned about this deadline that Saddam Hussein had been given and that there would be this terrible war. So it did it did strike me early on that this was this was something I was interested in and cared about. Um, but of course, yeah, I had no idea just how interested I would become at that at that point. We're similar in that way. I remember I was at my university when the the war came out, uh, broke out. And my interest in history up to that point had been largely Middle Eastern history. For some reason, as a teenager, I got very interested in the, the history of the Arabian Peninsula and the regions around it. So I was very familiar with Kuwait and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And I remember uh, at my university, the war breaks out and suddenly my roommate and my other friends are gathered around as I'm trying to tell them about Kuwait and Iraq and the, the Ottoman Empire and why this is a, an issue and all those things. And I was very popular for about three minutes. And then, and then their boredom and common sense kicked in and we all went off to do regular college things. Uh, you've, you've studied in, in various places to, to expand your, your knowledge on this and your, your network on this. So talk through kind of how you how you went through university and and got your doctorate and what you've been doing since then. Sure. So I started studying in Wales in in a university town called Aberystwyth which was well known for its international relations department and what I did not know when I applied but discovered when I arrived was that this was a place where the study of nuclear strategy had really been a stronghold um, for for a very, very long time. And we are now circa 1999 when nuclear weapons were really not a very hot topic anymore. So it was slightly unusual to have such an emphasis on this in, in the department. But I took every class I, I could actually on 
nuclear weapons. And that was instrumental in my decision to change from international history to international relations. I was somehow just intuitively interested in technology and states and politics. I thought this is an interesting area to to probe further. And and I, I think that there is something about that combination that, you know, really continues to intrigue me. So going through um, my university studies there, I then proceeded to the London School of Economics. And we're now early 2002, or the summer rather of 2002, when uh, the lead up to the Iraq war, the invasion was so present um, everywhere in the UK and in London in particular. Uh, And having started to interview some of the weapons scientists that were on the ground in Iraq uh, throughout the 1990s to uh, see if Iraq had actually destroyed its weapons of mass destruction as as required by UN resolutions, I just became more and more interested because it, it seemed like such a such a rich problem or a set of problems where, you know, you had to try and get a sense of some of the science, even as a non-scientist. And once, you know, you got your basic bearings there, what was more challenging was really to understand what was going on with the people and the institutions um, in in Iraq. Um, There were so many ideas that some of the scientists uh, that were inspectors took with them to Iraq that didn't quite pan out or didn't quite work um, in their analysis, I thought. And similarly, there were some books about Iraqi governance, you know, prior to the 2003 war that really portrayed Iraq as a kind of authoritarian system where Saddam Hussein had complete oversight and control. So. Right. Right. Uh, and this really struck me as something I did not see when I started to interview, well, first of all, the inspectors, and then after the war, some of the Iraqis. So, yeah, so that's that's a long answer to try and try and outline sort of my way into this topic. But um, but I, I just became interested in it for, right from the get go, I would say, when I arrived in London and, and this invasion seemed increasingly likely. And it, And it did lead you to write a remarkable book several years ago, encapsulating some of your research and thinking on this, Unclear Physics, Why Iraq and Libya Failed to Build Nuclear Weapons. And in that in that book and elsewhere, you have argued that much of what we know about nuclear proliferation or much of what we think we know about nuclear proliferation, and specifically why countries fail at it, is wrong. And I want to talk through some of that because I think some of those misconceptions are still very prominent in the media and even in some sections of academia worldwide, um, especially as it regards these, what you call personalist regimes in political science literature, the, the regimes very much focused on the, the strong man. And it usually is a strong man, um, taking over the state apparatus being, uh, if not authoritarian, semi-authoritarian. So let's let's do the Iraq case first, and then we'll compare and contrast a bit with Libya. Uh, as we get into the history, though, how did you do your research? Because many people have tried to look at issues somehow related to Iraq and proliferation, whether it was around the first Gulf War or whether it was around the invasion and the whole you know WND controversy there. 
but you were still able to find information no one else had. How did you do that? So I would say that the research can be divided into two stages for especially the Iraq case, but actually the same applies to to a large extent to Libya, where my first efforts were focused on tracking down scientists and speaking to them and getting their stories and their um, yeah their version of of what happened to to really start start there with their own uh, recollections. Uh, Malfred, were you surprised how many of them were willing to speak with you? Initially, I was surprised, um, and then I it dawned on me that. I was lucky to be, you know, uh, entering um, a, a culture where, you know, people are very uh, keen to help uh, students and, uh, you know, take great care that, you know, you uh, have had a, <laughs> a a big dinner by the time the interview is over and are very hospitable and, uh, and very, you know, helpful, I, I would say. So this kind of uh, this really helped me. Everyone that I talked to introduced me to at least two, three more people. So initially, I, I was surprised, but then gradually, I, I thought, well, you know, this is this is an issue that really sh- shaped their life. It shaped their working life for, in most cases, decades. And the aftermath, um, well, in both Iraq and Libya, but especially in Iraq, was was so dramatic and so traumatic. Uh, for many of these individuals and for their families that it made sense that they would want to have their version um, on the record or at least uh, speak, you know, their their version of the story. So what did you find? I mean, some of this was deep history. You go back to even before the Ba'ath coup in 1968 to some of the early thoughts about nuclear facilities in Iraq. But Really, the program takes off after, what, 1973 or so. So walk through the research uh, in that early time frame and, and what you found about Iraq's program and then how the information from those scientists and others really helped uh, feed some of these novel ideas that you've come up with about why states fail at uh, nuclear proliferation. Sure. So I would say that getting into the sort of deep historical roots of the program was was essential. And I did that in large part through um, individual interviews, accessing many of their private papers uh, from, from the program, and also by accessing the International Atomic Energy Agency's uh, archive. So that combina- combination was really essential because um, a lot of the perhaps mundane early planning correspondence field reports uh, really was was helpful in tracing the institutional development of these programs. And one striking observation for me was just how much reorganization and how many changes kept happening in the Iraqi program. Um, and this was partly connected to political developments and partly uh, related to uh, Saddam Hussein's efforts to to avoid any potential challengers to his uh, position. Uh, but it, it all amounted to an enormous amount of disruption. So it made it more difficult to sustain a program of this size and this complexity that you know a nuclear program 
uh, tends to become. And so for me, that was that was an early observation that you know really um, told me something important about you know why it was difficult to to as a, to obtain certain results in this program. So what happened? Um, once Saddam, I would say, started to consolidate his rule, it wasn't yet 1979 where it was, uh, if not absolute, close to it. But in the early 70s, as he was starting to consolidate his rule, at one point he sits down and instructs scientists to to launch a program and explore a fuel cycle. What what happened? Why do you think it happened at that time? And what did the scientists do with that guidance? I think it happened at that time because there was suddenly a lot of money coming in to the coffers from the uh, oil uh, oil market uh, in in the early 1970s. Um, so that's a big part of the explanation where it became possible to explore really expensive technologies. So the money is an important aspect. Uh, another aspect is that this was a time when states were beginning to talk more seriously about imposing restrictions on exports of, of this kind of technology. So the Iraqis were also concerned that it would make sense to buy as much as possible before the controls in the international system made it difficult to, to acquire what they wanted to of the more sensitive technologies. It's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, what did Saddam's scientists uh, do with his you know, uh, encouragement to pursue um, the nuclear fuel cycle without a without really a clear mandate. And I guess a short answer is that they interpreted that in rather different ways. Uh, some of the scientists thought, well, let's just you know explore the nuclear fuel cycle, do basic science, uh, do the kind of science that they were already interested in and were well acquainted with from their international careers. Others, and perhaps especially those that were you know card carrying members of the Ba'ath Party, took this as an opportunity to pitch a nuclear weapons program, and so you had these two, at least two competing groups that were pitching ideas upward in the system. And according to my interpretation, Saddam did not really make it clear to either of them what he, what his true intentions were. He kept that to himself and let these different groups sort of have their own assumptions about where this program was, was really going. This gets to a fascinating point here because I'll say that even my notions of an authoritarian state in something as special as a nuclear program that I envision something that's probably more informed, despite my own political science background, it's probably more informed by James Bond movies and visions of villains in evil layers than it is by reality. That if Saddam Hussein expresses an interest in a nuclear program and the scientists are feeding ideas up the chain, that this is what he spends his time, you know, sitting, stroking his chin, thinking about. And he has all of these apparatchiks and bureaucrats, you know, keeping a close eye on the program and giving him hourly or at least daily reports. And what you found is it was nothing like that, that Saddam was much more concerned about coup-proofing his own country and taking out rivals. He was concerned about Iran and Israel and relations with the U.S. and 
the Revolutionary Command Council itself, not just Saddam, lacked the mechanisms to review the progress of the program, that it was just kind of out there operating. And that's a huge shift in expectations from what most people bring to the table when it comes to what you think an authoritarian personality would would be like when operating a nuclear program within his country. How do you account for that difference? What's what's the real issue why the public perceives it one way and the reality, at least in the Iraqi case that you found, is so dramatically different? I suspect that it, it partly has to do with what Bob Jarvis and, and others have observed, that we, we tend to maybe assume that adversaries are more organized uh, and more strategic than they perhaps are. Um, and I, I do think that there was, you know, a really uh, clear shift uh, around the time of uh, the 91 Gulf War in terms of how Saddam was portrayed. Um, and he very much became, you know, a villain. Um, and um, it really is a striking contrast between, you know, what what the sources reveal about the actual operations of of this program uh, and you know the and perhaps this sort of public image that that was put across um, at that time or later on in, in the 1990s at least um, and what I find so fascinating is that this was this was an issue that it was it was significant um, because as as you mentioned. Uh, Saddam Hussein and senior Iraqis were very concerned with the Iranian nuclear program and Iranian nuclear developments and uh, wanted you know regular reports and updates on this. But when it came to their own nuclear program, it was very much uh, you know a, an effort that lacked sort of a clear set of of goals and milestones at least in in the 1970s there was, sort of a direction of travel and there were as i mentioned different ideas among the scientists about what the end station would be but it was not uh the kind of determined focused effort uh, that one assumes you know a nuclear weapons program proper uh, would have uh, and that point comes through time and time again in in the sources that describe the situation on the ground and the title of the book unclear physics also points back to you know one of the typos in an annual report uh in the iraqi nuclear program that states department of unclear physics as opposed to department of nuclear physics <laughs> and a senior scientists observing this just laughed and said keep it you know like that that's exactly what this is because yeah it wasn't really clear what what direction this this effort was taking and I do think that that suited some of the Iraqi scientists just fine, because then that gave them scope to pursue areas of, of interest. Um, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of money available to do that as well. You know, years ago, I heard a story about um, a researcher that was uh, in the archives at one of the, I believe it was one of the presidential libraries in the United States, and was found to have tampered with the archives. And you think that means they're doing something like, you know, destroying a document or modifying something to fit something they wanted to see. But in fact, this researcher had put a, a fake document into the archive to pretend they found it. And I thought that was odd. And what you just told me 
is such an amazing find. It's absolutely brilliant that you could find a report where nuclear physics was misspelled and they actually decided that it characterized the program better to keep it as unclear physics. I, I'm not saying you put that into the archives and you found it because you placed it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if it wasn't there, this is the kind of thing you should do because that is such an amazing characteristic about the Iraq program that comes out just in that mini story. It is it is amazing. And it was, you know, when when I realized that this should be the title of the book, it, it just made complete sense to me, uh, you know, with with regards to the argument. And and I agree with you. It's a really powerful, powerful story. And I, I'm grateful to Jafar, Jafar, the scientific leader of the Iraqi nuclear program, who, who had that recollection uh, of of this report and this this incredible typo. So, but honestly, I think this is this is also why I love archival research and why for me archives were essential for for writing this book because there are certain things that you know you it's it's difficult to imagine <laughs> that a thing like that would be possible. So yeah, again, uh, I'm a big fan of archives after working yeah. on this project, definitely. You, earlier, you mentioned the IAEA archives, um, especially for these early years. Uh, describe those archives to us, because that's that's a source I've never gone into for my own research, and I, I presume many listeners have not ever gone to research in the archives of the IAEA. But what kinds of information are there, and, and how robust is it on some of these early programs? I found it to be an absolutely incredible resource and an essential one for what I hoped to do, which was to really get a sense based on contemporary accounts of the situation on the ground in in both of these countries, Iraq and Libya. When I started working in those archives, I believe I was one, I was not the first, but I was among the early group of um, academics who got access to this archive. And this is a part of the agency uh, archive that has the perhaps unappealing name of technical assistance archives, which doesn't necessarily sound all that exciting if you're a political scientist or historian. But I, again, I just found it to be incredible. So this archive became accessible and it contained both correspondence from the you know, Iraqi and Libyan scientists about the structure of their organizations, restructuring of their organizations, what projects they were working on, um, plans for the future, as well as uh, really rich descriptions from um, visiting scientists who were there to provide some, you know, support or, or guidance in some aspects of, of these programs. So you That's sort a of had... Mine. Or I should say, an enriched uranium mine. That's that's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. thing to find. It it was incredible, and for me, I could not have written this book without those archives. Um, yeah. And now, more people, fortunately, are are working in the archives. But this is primarily a, a resource for the IAEA itself. So it is it is not like a traditional archive, um, like a national archive. Um, it is it is a slightly different thing, but that makes it all the more exciting to work in because you're in the organization. That's right. Uh, back to Iraq for a minute. You you know we talked about the 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 1970s and the beginning, if you will, of a of a more robust program, and you took it forward to the Gulf War in 1990 91. But 
something happened in the middle there that was kind of important, and that's when Israel bombed the facility at Osirak in, I think, June 1981, sometime in early 1981. Describe what happened there and what that both did to the existing program, but what it did in terms of how Iraq envisioned its path towards a nuclear program. So this is a question that has kept people busy for for a few decades now. And what I perhaps brought to that discussion was a set of uh, of perspectives from within the Iraqi nuclear community, uh, both at the time and then later on looking back. So the discussion about this strike was it was a strike that took out a, a reactor research reactor complex. And the discussion has been, did this prevent Iraq from using that to develop a nuclear weapons, either optional capability, or uh, was it not that important um, after all, and only sort of made Iraq more determined to get nuclear weapons so that Israel, which struck the reactor, wouldn't do so again. So based on based on my my research, I would say that uh, the Iraqi scientists did not see a direct role for this research reactor complex purchased from from France in their, you know, future potential nuclear weapons program. Um, that it wasn't suited for this because of the way it was built, uh, and also because it was subject to regular inspections from the IAEA. Um, and rebuilding it to make it suited for a nuclear weapons program would take a lot of time and it would inevitably be discovered by someone. Uh, but the uh, the reactor was struck and um, the result of this was that Saddam Hussein did indeed become more determined to acquire nuclear weapons sooner rather than later, took his uh, leading scientists, one of them, out of prison. This is now Jafar. Um, and said, you know, whatever you need to uh, to make us successful in this effort, you have it. And this triggered uh, a program that proverbially sort of went underground in the sense that they were took great care to design it in a way such that it would not be easily discovered and attacked again by, for example, Israel. They were deeply concerned about this prospect. So they pursued different kinds of technologies that would be mobile uh, so that they weren't so vulnerable with key nodes and key sites. Um, and Saddam did not you know, have a lot of advice for his nuclear scientists, but he did have one specific uh, piece of advice, which was do this in a way where you build on indigenous capabilities rather than buying equipment from other countries, which is what they had done during the 1970s. So that was the the instructions that Jafar and his colleagues um, worked with. And one thing I would say uh, about about this is that the, the program that emerged after June 1981 was sometimes, I think, uh, misunderstood slightly by some Western observers who criticized it for using technologies that were sort of old and inefficient and so on. But what I find, what I found in the sources was that the Iraqis were not worried about efficiency and they weren't, you know, really interested in having the cutting edge 
technology. They just wanted technologies that they could figure out and work with without being detected. That is such an important insight there because the the projection that especially Western observers will do is this is a backward program or this is because of those inefficiencies, this just shows how incompetent they are. And in, in fact, you, you revealed plenty of cases of incompetence in various ways in, in, in these programs you looked at. But, but the overall idea that because they're just going this route must mean that they don't know what they're doing because there's much more um, advanced, efficient ways of doing it. But you're missing the point if you see it that way, right? Because you're, you're not understanding that their, their highest goal is not to find the most efficient route. Their highest goal is to avoid discovery yeah. and where they can do this without foreign interference. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really um, encouraged and, and delighted to see that a lot of subsequent scholarship has, mm-hmm. has highlighted that and, and developed that point across other cases too, which, right. which I think is, is important because there is, there is always a risk of bias. And I think one thing that comes through very clearly from the Iraqi sources uh, is that they had a very thoughtful approach to selecting which technologies that they pursued and you know their assessment made sense uh, given their priorities at the time and of course also what i what i argue in in the book is that many of the delays and, and problems that they experienced in that effort during the 1980s had more to do with the institutional weaknesses uh, than the skill of of the engineers and scientists they had you know terrific scientists and engineers. Um, that was not the problem. After the Gulf War, the world learned uh, how much progress Iraq had made during that decade. And I remember, I think it was an IAEA report. It was some some report that had a lot of credibility in the late 1990s, 1997, 1998, that came out that revealed Iraq was very, very close. Um, some Iraqi scientists said they were within four or five years of, of obtaining the ability to manufacture a nuclear device. Other Iraqi scientists, though, and I find this fascinating, you talk to people who within the program disagreed with this, that they themselves weren't sure where they were at and, and how fast their progress would be. Is that because of this dynamic you've described of the program not being well-managed, not being well-led, that it could lead to very different interpretations of where they were at? I certainly think that there was fierce competition between sort of two tracks in that program. And, you know, the scientists that worked in one track had very strong opinions about the progress made in the other track. So I think that's, that is certainly part of the picture here that, you know, that there was competition then and that this continues to this day to to shape their assessments of of the overall performance of the program i would say that uh to me it is very striking to see the you know the increasing advance that you know was made overall in the iraqi nuclear program by the late 1980s i mean they were really serious about this and starting to think about perhaps um you know, testing and so on, it was a very serious program. And uh, the problems that they had were, you know, it, they were in the process of of resolving many of those. Um, that said, 
it is difficult, I think, to put an exact timeline. I think we're talking a number of years, um, perhaps less than a decade. Uh, but it, it it all comes down to how big of a rush the Iraqis thought that they were in. And prior to the invasion of Kuwait, I'm not sure that there was necessarily uh, a great sense of, of urgency um, on, on their part. For the IAEA to, to say that the Iraqis were close to a breakthrough uh, by 1991 really is a big deal. Uh, and it was a big deal because, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the Iraqi nuclear facilities were under regular inspections. And when the IAEA discovers in 91 that there had been a sprawling nuclear weapons program, in various other facilities, but also concealed within some of their declared facilities. This was not great for the standing of the IAEA, and that led to the creation of what is now known as the Additional Protocol. But again, back in the early 90s, it was it was a very serious issue that the IAEA indeed took very seriously. Uh, but it, it all underscores that you know their judgment about the progress of the Iraqi program is is one to to indeed take very seriously. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains 
more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And there are two interesting uh, implications of that, uh, one of which is well-known and one of which uh, I, I read in your work for the first time. Um, the one that I think people have heard before is the what came out about the Iraqi WMD programs writ large after the invasion of Kuwait and the inspections that came after was that Iraq was further along in its programs generally, um, but in several ways was further along than outside analysts had assumed. And that in turn fed into assumptions about Iraq WMD going into the 2002-2003 framework, that that set expectations for what Iraq was able to do covertly and, and whether they were telling the truth publicly. But the other one, was about the Kuwait invasion itself. Uh, the fact that you just mentioned that Iraq invaded Kuwait 
at a time when there was significant progress being made in these programs. And maybe it wasn't two or three years, but it probably wasn't two or three decades that we would have breakthrough. The very fact that Saddam would invade Kuwait at such a sensitive time actually tells us something about how important he felt the nuclear program was, doesn't it? I certainly think so. Um, It was something that several senior Iraqi scientists mentioned uh, that baffled them, that they believed if you know, Saddam had not invaded Kuwait, um, he would have ended up with nuclear weapons um, at at some stage. And uh, they were really surprised, you know, that he made this decision at that point in time. Um, And also, you know, there were, uh, there were meetings after the the invasion of of Kuwait, where Saddam's son-in-law, Hussein Kamal, was trying to reassure Saddam Hussein that this crash program that they had launched after the invasion to quickly produce uh, a nuclear device of some kind that they were, you know, doing really well and were, you know, close to success, which was a large exaggeration, that Saddam Hussein apparently wasn't paying much attention, that he was looking out the window and seemed preoccupied with, with other matters. So, so I, I think you're you're spot on, and I, I do think that it tells us something important about nuclear weapons programs that mm-hmm. these are long projects. They take a really long time. Um, in you know, in some ways, they seem to take longer and longer uh, for for countries, and so other priorities come in the way, um, and and it can ha- that can have really you know big consequences, as as in this particular case. Yeah. Let's compare and contrast with Libya, uh, a, a fascinating pairing for this because there are so many similarities that one would not have seen unless they talked to the scientists and dug into the archives, all the things you've done. Um, and yet the, the few different variables really do highlight some interesting things about both what we think we know about Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi, and also about nuclear weapons programs in these personalist states. So to, to set the stage a bit, um, we won't go into the deep history, but 1969, the self-proclaimed Revolutionary Command Council comes in with Gaddafi in the lead. Um, and suddenly there's a new government, but it's a very poor country. They don't have a lot of infrastructure. And yet you found that when Libya later declared that they had started nuclear program in 1973, they weren't quite telling the full truth because you found things going on within months of Gaddafi coming into power, I think in 1970. Talk about the roots of the Libyan program and how that developed during the 1970s. So um, very early on after the coup, um, Gaddafi and his you know fellow travelers were interested in nuclear weapons and they reached out to to China and they reached out to Nasser in Egypt trying to figure out if there was any kind of shortcut to uh, well essentially buying the bomb um, they were um, they were not encouraged by the answers that they got um, and it became clear fairly early on that uh, it would be necessary to develop, uh, their own uh, communities of uh, of si- of science and engineering, um, and that would be a long long road to travel for for the Libyans, uh, given this very different starting point 
Libya had compared with uh, compared with Iraq uh, when it came to sort of the educational uh, resources in the country, a very, very different um, state altogether. Um, and most significantly, perhaps, in my mind, was Gaddafi's own revolutionary project of, of the stateless state that he gradually developed where, you know, the starting point was a weak state to begin with. And then his project of weakening it further really created significant obstacles to any kind of of planning of a a project of size and complexity that a nuclear program or nuclear weapons program would entail. That's so counterintuitive for people who only saw Gaddafi as the caricature that he, in some ways, (laughs) um, reinforced with his own behavior in the 1980s, but Gaddafi as being the dictator, the person in charge. And you can imagine, again, that image of him sitting down and directing the scientists what to do and watching them like a hawk. But instead, the entire philosophy, especially in the the 70s, was we're breaking down these institutions, which are already weak, and therefore we will have almost no planning, almost no insight, and almost no control, even on a program as sensitive as a nuclear one. It's it's a fascinating thing to think about. It is indeed. Um, and I, I think that, you know, reading some of the, the archival documents from the Libyan program were some of the more astounding, you know, observations that I made where, you know, it was, it was really a directionless uh, kind of effort where there was no sort of sense of, of planning of, procurement of buying of technology so they would buy equipment that sat in the boxes unopened and in some case duplicates or they would you know buy the wrong kind of equipment Um, and many of the scientists did not show up to work especially often because either they found you know the commute to be a bit long or they had to essentially subsidize their own salary by teaching at universities so and and Perhaps the most astounding example was a number of these scientists came from Egypt. And during sort of border conflicts between Egypt and Libya, some of these scientists that had come from Egypt went on strike to get, you know, better pay and conditions. So it, you know, it tells you something about the the state of affairs when when this kind of stuff is, is going on. It's very far from this sort of yeah, caricature yeah. Uh, that indeed Gaddafi tried to to portray yeah. himself, I think. Of course, things changed dramatically in Libya in the 1970s because of the earlier discovery of oil, but then, of course, the the huge increase in prices. And what we then saw was something which, again, is some similarities to Iraq, but it played out in a different way, which is people understood that Libya was trying a bunch of different things. I mean, everything from this huge man-made river project to crash programs to um, industrialize parts of the country, so much of it not working, right? Just the, the inability to get anything actually done because there wasn't the planning. But on the nuclear side, it looked like they were they were buying a wide range of facilities in the, this period. They were trying to get services from abroad. It looked like they were trying to launch a crash program, but in fact, it just looked like they had a lot of money and they were throwing it around in every way they could to try to go every path 
towards buying a, a nuclear facility and try to get reactors from this country or that country, um, it wasn't nearly as organized as, as it might have looked from the outside in terms of a crash program with a logic to it. It was they were flush with cash, and this was something that they decided they could just invest in. Absolutely. Um, and there are uh, a number of examples of how the sort of the lack of planning impeded, you know, any kind of effort emerging from the combination of, of cash um, and, and equipment. Uh, and another side to this is that, you know, there were some very, very smart people um, in charge of this program um, at, at this point in time. But they were not really able to build, you know, a cadre of scientists and engineers to, you know, to to do the work. Essentially, um, they found it difficult to convince people to to join these programs. Uh, smart people, engineers, typically wanted to work in the oil industry instead. So they were continuously struggling with with this shortage um, of of manpower and. And also this inability to to really sort of launch a, a complex program and, and get it off, off the ground, essentially. Yeah. So eventually, as you go through the 1980s and you get to 1989, 1990, um, effort after effort to be buying things, right, from the Soviet Union, I think, and then turning to the French and the Belgians and who knows who else, it just wasn't working. Um what was the turn in the Libyan program when they decided they couldn't get this? Obviously, they didn't have the indigenous capability. They didn't even have physics classes in Libya <laughs> a couple of decades earlier. Um, they didn't have the personnel. They didn't have the expertise. They didn't have the infrastructure. Um, you try to bring in outside help. You try to bring in countries giving you facilities or materials or buying them from countries. But what's the other path and where did they go in the 1990s? So in the early 1990s, um, along came A.Q. Khan, who uh, actually offered both to Iraq and to Libya um, another route, uh, which was to buy, uh, well, the full package, um, weapons, uh, designs, uh, centrifuges, um, and you know, the Libyans became his best customer, uh, essentially, and spent quite a lot of money um, asking for, you know, a ready-made package of, of centrifuges. Um, they were soon to be disappointed, however, because what they realized was that these were very much secondhand items that were, you know, left <laughs> leftovers from from the Pakistani program, essentially, um, and that they were not uh, sold as a package. They were not assembled. They did not receive the help uh, that they needed, you know, to to build the centrifuges. Essentially, so so they the the Libyans found that it wasn't really a shortcut after all, and soon became sort of very disaffected with with their AQ Khan experience. But but that was very much sort of the opportunity that came along that um, made the Libyans decide to sort of try again after a rather difficult period in the 1980s where these other efforts that you mentioned didn't really go anywhere. So they had high hopes for, for the AQCon network, um, but, but didn't, didn't see much in terms of, of, of success. And this is the time frame, if I'm right, that 
senior leaders, a very small group of them, but senior leaders did start taking more of an interest in the nuclear program. And I know you heard some of this uh, directly from Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, um, one of Muammar Gaddafi's sons. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about interviewing him and the insights you got from someone who was both so close to Gaddafi, but someone who, while certainly not a nuclear scientist in any way, um, somebody who was almost like the fixer, right? Someone who was coming in with the authority that came from his connections to try to spur this program forward. So I found found all of the interviews I did in Libya to be really fascinating. And each and every one gave me sort of new insights into the Libyan system, um, essentially, and, and how, you know, how it worked, and more importantly, how it, it didn't work in ways that I hadn't quite imagined from the get go. With regards to, to Saif al-Islam, that was a really interesting, well, it was a couple of interviews, um, uh, actually rather close to his uh, white tiger. So that was an added sort of bit of excitement, uh, wow. I suppose. But but I, I spoke to him and I spoke to some of um, the senior uh, Libyan officials who were sort of very much involved in the talks that led to the decision to, to give up on the bomb, essentially. Um, and my impression was that uh, Safe was was very important in having access, you know, to the great leader, to to Muammar Gaddafi, and as someone who who had his ear and could sort of lean in on that decision to encourage uh, Muammar Gaddafi to to decide to give up the bomb when there were certainly, um, according to Safe, um, this was a long-standing dream for from some of the uh, other um, Libyan officials. Uh, within the military circles to to get nuclear weapons, so it was uh, it was I think important from from the internal uh, point of view to have have him take such a strong position um, on this and for him to try and and ultimately succeed in persuading Muammar Gaddafi to yeah to give up on on the bomb. Um, there is also I think the 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 risk that that Safe's role. Um, could be perhaps somewhat exaggerated. I think he was very much jostling for for power, um, mm-hmm. as he apparently is even to this day. <laughs> but he certainly was uh, back in two thousand five, two thousand and six. Um, so, so it was important for me to to qualify some of those claims and check them against other participants in in those talks, which included, of course, some of the most senior and, and trusted um, Libyan officials. Um, who engaged in these trilateral talks with the U.S. and the United Kingdom um, that initially focused on the Lockerbie trial and then uh, culminated with the WMD abandoning decision. Talk about that decision a bit, because I think there still is some public misunderstanding of that just based on the timing, right? It was announced that Libya was giving up all of its programs, what, late 2003, and of course, by then there'd been the invasion of Iraq, 9-11 had happened, and it's hard for people not to see some causation in the correlation of the timing. Um, but of course, Libya had decided to give up its program and use it as a bargaining chip, if you will, long before that. Walk us through that process and the actual timing of Libya's decision. Yeah, no, it it is impossible, I think, to completely 
isolate that decision from the developments in in Iraq um, that year that I think put a new sense of urgency, uh, I think definitely within within the Libyan regime to to settle this issue. But uh, my clear impression based on, you know, what uh, not only Libyan officials uh, said, but US and UK participants in, in the trilateral talks and accounts, uh, written accounts from, from that time was that the, the Libyans had offered in principle years earlier when they started this uh, process of uh, trying to improve relations with the US and the UK, um, where it was the US and the UK that insisted on a phased approach of doing, you know, settling one issue and then moving to the next. And the Lockerbie trial was, was of course, essential uh, to uh, to resolve first. So that was that was clearly very important and took took quite a long time. And once that trial um, these things had been resolved, the WMD uh, issue was was next on the list. Um, there were other important items as well that the Libyans did not want to discuss. One, for example, being the killing of British policewoman Yvonne Fletcher uh, in London where it is widely believed that a very senior Libyan official was involved, if, if not actually pulling the trigger. So there were certain other issues that you know, were left unresolved. But the WMD decision was in many ways the big one. And it became an important uh, priority for all parties, I believe, because of the Iraq war and the need on the US and, and the UK side to have a big breakthrough uh, in the WMD area. And Libya was sort of teed up in a way to to be just that. Um, so I would say, yes, the context is important, but in principle, the offer had been on the table for years before that. Wow. So after this, of course, the IEEA and countries like the United States uh, go in and get all of the equipment and all of the records that they can find. And basically, the Libyan nuclear program is is done. And what you find digging back into the research is that, yes, the, the Libyan program had been revived. There had been enormous investments made. They had a lot of equipment. But it's still, to put it politely, um, it was still underperforming as a, as a nuclear program. Um, why is that? And this is a good point to compare it to the Iraq case. Why was it underperforming so much, given that it had some advantages in some important ways? Yeah, I think here is when, when you really see the, you know, the, the consequences of this stateless state experiment that Gaddafi had, had started, where, you know, planning, coordination, um, and, you know, monitoring progress became very, very difficult. There were some really smart scientists leading uh, the Libyan nuclear program, so I think it would be a mistake to, you know, to underestimate uh, their abilities um, because they they knew what they were doing. But as as a person who was on the ground and interacted with them said, you know, the, there was just no bench in Libya. They didn't have uh, enough people who were, you know, willing and able to to pull off a program of of this size. And it turned out that this um, AQ Khan assistance, in in some ways, was 
was creating new problems rather than creating uh, the shortcut that they perhaps um, had hoped for. So it is it is a very different setting from from the Iraqi program where you know there was competing tracks and uh, you know increasing progress uh, during during the 1980s the the Libyan project suffered from you know the same kinds of problems that they had suffered from all along which which had to do with you know the dysfunction of um, of the Libyan state uh, and Libyan institutions that you know there was no way to buy buy a fix out of those problems. So I'm thinking here about the implications of this, and there, there's a few. Some of them um, kind of about our views of these personalist regimes, and some of them about nuclear proliferation in the years since you've done this research. Um, let's hit the first one first. It it sure seems to me, having you know read your analysis of Iraq and Libya and hearing you explain it here, that we have this vision that these these leaders, these authoritarian style leaders, basically always get what they want and they have few constraints on their abilities. And at least in this area, which is a pretty sensitive area, you would think this would be a strong case for that. And even in these cases, you poke some holes in that conception, right? Uh, well, I'm trying because I think it's one of the most important uh, observations for me coming out of this project is that leaders such as Saddam and Gaddafi, um, their path to consolidating power involved weakening state institutions. And they went about it in slightly different ways. Gaddafi had his very own style, as, as we've talked about, of the sort of stateless state and trying to weaken bureaucracy. And so... You know, in the in each of these cases, however, um, you know, weakening state institutions had really serious implications for their own oversight of what was going on. And you know, time and time again, uh, Saddam tried to keep tabs on what was going on in the nuclear weapons program in in the nineteen eighties, and finds that it's very difficult to get clear answers, and that the programs are sort of uh, changing shape and changing reporting formats all the time so that it becomes very, very difficult to figure out, you know, what's going on and how is the actual progress uh, panning out. And there are these amazing uh, exchanges where Saddam complains about getting too many reports and too much reading material and he's overwhelmed with you know the amount of decisions he has to make right. and of course that's sort of one would imagine that's the life of, of a personalist ruler um but it is quite striking how you know difficult it is and how much he complains about um implementation problems and his staff uh, not really doing what he's telling them to, even, as you say, in in the case of, of the nuclear weapons programs. And so it's just very, very different from what I expected to see sort of going into this research. And I do think that this is an important point, uh, because I, I think my suspicion is that this goes on in other personalist regimes as well, mm. um, and that it's not you know, it may be worse in the cases like Saddam and, and Gaddafi, but it goes on elsewhere too. And that, you know, that's important for understanding, you know, the trajectory of, of these kinds of programs in authoritarian type systems. Let's talk about 
some of those other potential countries because there are many, many countries without nuclear weapons and uh, yet many countries that have some of the capability and infrastructure that these countries were building. So at one extreme are the countries, and there are many, but uh, I can think of Japan, Canada, Germany, countries that have the government infrastructure, have the ability to do planning of projects, have the technology, have the personnel uh, that could presumably have a a nuclear breakout almost any time they they chose to as a matter of policy. On the other side are the countries that are more like a Libya originally, which may have a desire, which presumably Germany right now does not, but may have a desire for a nuclear program, but they don't have any of those benefits. Um, Most countries seem to be in the middle. And those variables break out differently, like North Korea and Iran are very different than Libya and Iraq in important ways, um, as are Saudi Arabia and Turkey and others that have either speculated themselves about an interest in a nuclear capability should other things in their regional uh, circumstances change, or others have speculated about them. So talk through that range of other potential proliferators and and how you see what you've learned about proliferation from these case studies applying to other cases of proliferation today? So I think that, first of all, many of these countries have been paying attention to both Iraq and Libya and what, you know, what what transpired in both of those cases and have reached their own conclusions about what not to do. Um, And what not to do is uh, to uh, agree to the agreement that that Libya did um, or uh, in the case of, of Iraq, um, admits inspectors uh, to uh, to verify WMD disarmament. Neither of those models of uh, of rollback or disarmament are likely to appeal to any other country. And in fact, Iran and North Korea have been quite clear that they are not interested in uh, a so-called Libya model. Um, in terms of the capabilities um, and, you know, um, systems of of governance in these other countries, I think we're looking at a very different landscape. Um, We're also looking at a landscape that is, you know, several decades later where uh, technology um, has changed and the countries that are, you know, of greater concern now are countries that, you know, as you you outline, um, have had a long time to develop uh, nuclear capabilities uh, and are closer to a kind of a, uh, a latent capability should they decide that their security environment has changed. Um, and many of those countries um, you know, are now sort of of, of increasing concern, uh, South Korea being one of them, um, and in you know, Saudi Arabia perhaps uh, another. And even in Europe, um, you know, concerns about you know, the credibility of, of U.S. commitment to its allies are, I think, leading to an unease that will perhaps inform how states position themselves in, in, in a different way of moving forward. So I think that, you know, this is a very different kind of, of landscape and different kinds of, of states from, from these personalist uh, kinds of systems that, you know, 
I observed in, in the cases of Iraq and Libya. One of your other research interest areas is um, nuclear issues overlapping with the high north. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed so many of our expectations about cooperation, um, the Arctic Council being essentially useless at this point, to be very blunt, and the security concerns of Sweden and Finland prompting them to uh, rapidly shift and apply to NATO, the enhancement of security cooperation of of Norway with many other partners um, in the high north. Do you see any nuclear angle to this, presuming that Russia does not begin behaving like a civilized nation? Uh, what are those implications? So I think one implication that um, that there seems to be a broad consensus on in the Norwegian landscape is that nuclear weapons are likely to be more important for, for Russia um, in years to come, given the performance of its conventional forces. Mm-hmm. And this will likely be felt in, in the high north um, in particular. So I think there is a sense of difficulties ahead where, you know, this increasing reliance on nuclear weapons in in this part of the world, combined with, you know, the falling apart of these um, arrangements whereby Norway and, and Russia would, you know, provide have at least some sense of of cooperation to um, to in terms of you know nuclear pollution and things of that nature. That at least was gave us some ways in which to communicate, um, even when when things were difficult in the past. These are now you know falling apart as well. So more tension, less communication. Is, is indeed cause for concern, especially when you pair this with uh, the anticipated NATO expansion, uh, really sort of redrawing the, the, the strategic map of Northern Europe and adding to that the increasing interest uh, of China in this region. I think the scene is really set for some significant problems and turbulence ahead. It certainly changes the strategic landscape a bit that it it does appear China is poised to, frankly, take advantage of Russia's need and gain great access to the Northern Sea routes and to Russian port facilities, presumably even buying up um, Russian resources in the high north in a way that does look like China's role in the Arctic will be dramatically higher in five or 10 years than even a straight line projection before the Russian invasion of Ukraine would have suggested. And that, of course, does raise some potential nuclear issues, depending on how conflicts could emerge in the region. Are you getting the sense that that concern is is, is permeating beyond Norwegian political scientists and um, military planners and think tank um, analysts but getting into the population that the the people are actually thinking about the danger of some kind of nuclear escalation in a future conflict? That's a great question. Um, I would say that um, the invasion of, of the 2022 invasion of, of Ukraine really created a fear of, of nuclear war um, in Norwegian society that we haven't seen really since the 1980s. Uh, people were really, really scared in in a way that you know we haven't seen this in a very long time. So I think that the concern about nuclear weapons has has certainly been reawakened. 
I, I would also you know, assume that the shift in support for NATO in, in Sweden and even more strikingly in Finland suggests perhaps something similar that um, that people have become uh, you know alert to these issues in in a very different way. So, does that mean that there is uh, you know a great emphasis on you know deterrence and reassurance and risk reduction conversation around dinner tables throughout Norwegian society? Probably not. And and here I really think that you know academics, researchers, experts, and of course, politicians have a really important task ahead of them, which is is to really explain the issues, explain the risks and talk about the toolkits, because a lot of this um, has been forgotten. Uh, after the end of the Cold War, this became a very specialized area of interest. And so I think it's it's really important to take the time to to delve into these issues and and really spell them out. Um, you know, even at you know in you know areas of the bureaucracy where you know you would think that deterrence would be sort of the bread and butter of of what people are doing, you find that actually people mean very different things nowadays when they talk about deterrence. This is now clear in a very different way than, you know, it has been for, for quite a long time. So I do think that, you know, there is there's a lot of work ahead of us um, in talking about these these dangers and, and how to how to tackle them as a small country. Absolutely. Well, let's reach into our chatterbox and surprise you with some <laughs> random question. Malfred, please name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now i know exactly uh johan jürgen holst who uh was uh, a norwegian statesman minister of defense minister of foreign affairs who was also uh you know who knew arms control and understood arms control Mm -hmm. better than better than most uh, who was a really central figure in in handling some of the uh, the pre INF debates within NATO, um, and was someone who really had a, a rich and deep understanding of the sort of the theory of of deterrence, but also the political toolkit for how to work out solutions to really difficult problems. I would be very very interested to get his take on where we go from here as he was someone who you know early on focused on deterrence and reassurance as you know the the framing uh, conceptual pair for norwegian security policy we're still trying to figure out how to do both of those things in these changing uh, you know situations and environments i would love to get his take on that <laughs> as would i um a, w- a wonderful choice uh, Malfred, thank you for spending so much time talking uh, about your research interests, your uh, archival and interview research, the implications of all of it, and current events. We've hit it all. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 